Welcome to the Feds. Insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Today, we are talking with Melissa Bruckner. Melissa is one of our newer board members. She joined us this year with Feds as uh, Feds for Med Freedom board member and has helped us. Um, uh, she has helped so much with the transition to Feds for Freedom. Um, she's one of our hardest workers and has been very much involved in the organization and the structuring of our board and of our systems that we're getting into place. And so we're really happy to have Melissa on today. Um, Melissa, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and Melissa, I want you to introduce yourself. Tell us about where you're from, where you grew up, kind of your background and where you are today. So um, I'm Melissa Bruckner and I am from Yorba Linda, California which is in Orange County, Southern California, about uh, 50 miles south of Los Angeles. I spent my entire childhood there, grew up there. It was a, a wonderful place to grow up, very safe, family-oriented. Um, my family, some of them still live there, and um, I visit pretty frequently. Um, it's still conservative. Uh, that area? A little bit. Tell me where it is again so everyone can move there. Yorba Linda, California. <laughs> That's two words, Yorba Linda. Gotcha. Okay. It is also um, known as the birthplace of one of our presidents, Richard M. Nixon. Um, his presidential library is there. He is buried there. It's a great tourist attraction for anybody who wants to go see it. can come to my hometown. It's wonderful. Cool. Awesome. So you grew up in California. Um, did you, I'm assuming you went to school at some point. Where did, when did you leave the nest and where did you go from there? So, yes, um, I graduated from high school in California, um, eventually made my way to New York City, went to Yeshiva University, which is not well known in the world at large, but it's basically the uh, premier private Jewish university. Um Graduated from there with a degree in economics and went out into the big world of New York City, which is pretty crazy when you're 21 years old. Did you always want to go to New York? Was that your dream growing up? I actually never wanted to go to New York. <laughs> <laughs> I really never wanted to leave home. I mean, it was just, um, it's nice to be surrounded by what you know, but um, my, my father was a New Yorker. My mother went to college in New York, and they basically said, you have to leave the nest. Like, there's a big world out there, and, you know, you have to be prepared for it, and now is the time to do that. So go and, you know, just visit us. <laughs> just come back. Just please call. Um, okay, so you went to school in New York. How did you end up in the federal government? So after graduation, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. What does a person with an economics degree do? I'm still not really sure. I mean, you could work at the Federal Reserve but um, or be a controller somewhere, but that never really interested me. So I, uh, I jumped around a lot from different things. I, I worked in real estate. I worked in the Diamond District, which is really famous in New York City. I had a lot of different kind of like 
dead-end jobs. And as part of one of those, I met a woman who worked at the Social Security Administration. And, you know, she gave me her card. I sent in my resume. I got a random call um, like a month later and went for an interview and then got hired. Okay. And you've been working with the Social Security Administration for how long? Uh, Since 2005, so almost 19 years. Yeah. Yeah. And today you are a senior management. Yeah. So I, I, I started as like a clerk behind the window, like one of those people that you come in who greets you and tries to help you, uh, worked my way up, got into management. I've been in management since, um, 2014 consistently. And yeah, so now I'm a, a director, um, in our headquarters and uh, I work on IT projects. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you just kind of fell into the government employee sphere of life. And have you enjoyed it? What has your, been your experience so far? I mean, be- before, let's say before 2020, what was your experience? <laughs> um, really, I, I loved working at the Social Security Administration. I mean, I think one of the things I always wanted to do, um, although I never really like knew exactly how to do that, was to help people. And of all the federal agencies, Social Security is one of the few that has like real face-to-face contact with just the general public at large in America. I mean, we do a lot of things for Americans, including, you know, giving out Social Security cards, but we help disabled people, retired people, you know, people who really um, need us. And so... You do have like a a sense of satisfaction when you're working with the public every day to know that you are trying to do something good. Um, And, you know, for the most part, like the Social Security really prided itself on treating their employees well. Um, I I have been treated well there overall. So I was very proud to work there um, and very happy to be a federal employee. Awesome. Okay. So let's fast forward then to... 2020, COVID hits the world and um, impacts everyone differently, and everyone has a different story. Um, so tell me what you, what what you started to see, and how your opinions started to shape around the narrative that we were being told, and and then how people were handling it, specifically the government. So, I mean, I wasn't really worried about COVID. You know, I kind of made up my mind with the beginning of all this, that it just wasn't really going to make a big difference to me. Even though you were in New York City and everyone's Even though I was in New York City and, right, it was like the epicenter and, right, and then one day they just sent us home and said, well, you'll probably be home for two weeks, right, Mm -hmm. of course, and then that got extended to to a month, to two months. It was like we never knew when we were coming back to work. Really, my concerns started happening when – um, they started having all the the George Floyd, Floyd you know, Black Lives Matter right, riots in up. New York yeah. City. And it started getting really dangerous to be out on the street. Um, and the governor of New York started letting people out of jails to slow the spread in the jail populations. I mean, it was all just like Wild. totally ridiculous. Um, so that was my main concern. It was more like a safety thing, not like a COVID thing. Yeah. I, I'm not really a big follower of the news because I think it's just <laughs> propaganda and nonsense. 
But, you know, the one thing I was watching the whole time was just the numbers, right? Like they were just um, really trying to create fear in the in the public, you know, posting the number of of cases of hospitalizations and death. But like I'm a math person and I can figure these, you know, you can figure this out if if you have, you know, 100,000 people um, who are sick and, you know, 1,000 of them die, why is that something I need to be worried about when they're saying, oh, well, these people are elderly or they have comorbidities? Well, I thank God am not either of those. Yeah. So, so this isn't something that you're going to, you know, right. I mean, I was a little worried for my over. mother. Right. Right. We um, take care of the ones that we know are at risk <laughs> and the rest of us continue onward, right? Exactly. So for myself, like, I didn't really care. I went maskless as long as possible everywhere that I could. And people were like looking at me like I was totally nuts on the street because, you know, like literally parting the seas to let me walk past <laughs> them because they didn't want to be near me. But, um, you know, I I just didn't really care. I I wasn't going to buy into it. So I, I don't like to live my life just thinking about fear and all the things that can go wrong. I wasn't going to change that for this. Right. So when vaccines started to come out and then of I was course, like, I don't need this. Right. <laughs> you why? know, I yeah. don't know why anybody needs this. Uh -huh. like, and then the president says all federal employees have to get this. What I was I said, no. I mean, I, you know, my friends and I, we had been talking about it and some of them were on the fence and, you know, some of them were scared and they wanted to do it. And you know, right. When the mandate came, like my friends were like, so you're going to do this now. Right. And I was like, no, I <laughs> think you might have misheard me. Like I said, I'm not going to do that. So I'm not going to do it. Yeah. But you'll lose your job. OK, well, then I'll find another job. And that was kind of what I started preparing to do was thinking about all the other things I might do instead of working for the federal government. I yeah. mean, I thought that, that was the reality of the situation. Out, like, well, it did. Lot. I mean, you, you know, I started preparing myself. So okay. like cutting back on unnecessary expenses. If I was going to be unemployed for a while, I needed to save money. And, you know, thinking about if I was going to have to move, I live by myself. You know, how was I going to take care of myself? So just kind of like preparing, Very getting practical. all my medical appointments in wow. before yeah. they cut off my insurance, right? Yeah. Um, so all that kind of stuff. I just went like straight into planning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had been reading online that they were going to allow religious accommodations. Uh, so I started doing a little research on how I could write a religious accommodation. And, you know, when when they finally like put the policy out there, like, you either show us a picture of your vaccine card or you submit an accommodation the first day, bam, like I you had it ready. written. You I was ready. ready. You exactly. Were you so, exactly what to um, do. so yeah, I mean, even my supervisor was like, whoa, like, how did you have this ready in time? I mean, I was preparing. So, um, and I was very open with my, with my bosses. I told them, you know, I'm not going to do this. You'll have an accommodation from me and you do what you need to do. I'm going to do what I need to do. Yeah. As we've merged into Feds for Freedom, this will be our last question. Um, as we've merged into our new kind of brand and our new organization um, vision and mission, um, what is it that you are excited about and what you see us accomplishing or what do you what do you feel like is part of our mission that you really are, are 
ready to support and jump into? So, I mean, I think the potential is really unlimited uh, for our group. I would really like us to um, reach the American public more and um, do a thorough job of explaining to them uh, what we know as federal employees, what our experience is, um, and, you know, show them that we have a lot of value, right? Because I think in general, people feel kind of negative towards public servants, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I think everyone in their mind thinks, oh, the DMV, right? <laughs> like you wait on a long the line. And, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, you know, but like we, we have a lot of talent. A lot of us have a lot of talent. We have a lot of commitment. Um, many of us give our lives to serve Americans and yeah, your average civil servant, um, is, is not a hero, right? We're not saving lives every day, but actually we kind of are, right? It's just not, it's just not in a uniform or with a gun in a military zone. I mean, we are doing important work that helps people, that keeps people safe, that, um, you know, promotes democracy and freedom and constitutional rights. And we are what keeps this country functioning. Um, and I, I just think that we don't get enough credit for that. And what we are doing as an organization is even beyond that, right? Because we are just trying to correct all of the things that we know are going wrong in our federal system. So, um, you know, I think just doing a good job of reaching other audiences, we focused a lot on federal employees, of course, for now, because we had an emergency, right? And um, we had to help our own. Yeah. Um, but now it's time to do what we do every day, mm -hmm. which is help right America. Yeah. Yeah. And if we had more time, maybe after our break, um, <laughs> we can talk about how the the changes that you feel like would be effective because that really is the power that we have as this organization. We have all these amazing people who are willing to step up and say these things are not how they should be within our federal agencies and we need to improve them. We need to fix them. They're not serving the American people the way they should. And that's really what we can, um, I feel like we can bring from our organization, from so many of our members is um, those solutions. And we can, we are working to create new policy, create change and reform in our government to help improve all those things, to have transparency, to have um, integrity, more more of those values that we're looking for within our, our federal government and not just the political, uh, the politis politicization, is that the way you say it? Politis that's a hard word. <laughs> politicization of our federal agencies. Um, and uh, it's important that we get back to to the place where we are serving the American people first. So, <clears throat> all right. Well, thank you, Melissa.
back. And we are back with Melissa Bruckner, um, having a conversation about her and her background. And now we're going to ask a few more questions. I would love to know, Melissa, um, why is it after all that you saw and experienced um, that you decided that you had to get involved? So, um, like I said earlier, um, you know, I didn't really experience any discrimination at work because of my vaccine status and the choices that I made. Um, I mean, in fact, I couldn't have asked for probably a better situation to be in as a federal employee at that time. But still, the future was uncertain. And, you know, we never knew sort of when there was going to be enforcement or if there was going to be enforcement of the mandate and what what would kind of happen. And, you know, I was thinking about what my future would look like without my job, you know, in the federal government. I had spent the majority of my adult life, you know, working for one agency and, you know, built a career for myself, relationships, and it could just all be gone like in yeah. an instant. And in a situation like that where you have just massive uncertainty and the threat of like total upheaval, all you want to do is know that you're not the only one, right? And and you're not going through this whole process alone. So, you know, I was thrilled when I heard, you know, that Feds for Medical Freedom um, was an organization that had obtained the injunction against the administration through the lawsuit. Um, so I joined right away. And, um, you know, just I, I started, you know, reading the chats and reading the experiences of other people and then, you know, had the opportunity through my local chapter um, to meet some people. And then, you know, you have like ideas of how we can improve and expand and do more. And, you know, I expressed some of my opinions um, to my local chapter head and she was like, you know, you should probably share this with some of the leadership. So <laughs> I did. And then, you know, somebody said to me, well, maybe, you know, you'd want to like run our PowerPoint for the biweekly calls that we were having at that point. So I got involved there. And then, you know, that was kind of just the catalyst, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then um, somebody uh, suggested to me when you guys had the board solicitation last year, you know, you have a lot of ideas like you're willing to put in the time. Um, maybe you should run for the board. So I did. And, you know, the rest is kind of history there. Yes. Yes. And we are really glad you came on board because there's a lot we've had to do and a lot of a lot of um, work ahead of us. And that brings me to my next question, which is what do you what are you excited about with the future of Feds for Freedom? And um, what are you looking forward to as we progress through this new chapter? So, you know, we all know that the vaccine mandates didn't just um, come to fruition overnight, right? <laughs> like it wasn't just the brainchild of some evil genius, <laughs> you know, who woke up one day and said, you know, we should just mandate vaccines, right? And, and do this thing. And now we have this opportunity. So let's pull the trigger now. No, I mean, there are a thousand small 
sort of unnoticed things that have been happening in this country and within the federal service that have led us to a point where, you know, an entire administration felt that mandating a medical procedure would be okay. Um, and they re- they came to that level of comfort where it, they thought that that right, would pass. Because a thousand <laughs> other things had, had come up and gone totally unnoticed or not really pursued right, not by people who it. felt that it was wrong, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, when they had the opportunity to then make this massive move, they felt that the time was right, right? right? So, you know, knowing that there are those thousands of small things that are happening every single day in the federal government that led us to this point, I don't ever want to get back to that, right? But that means in order to stop that from happening again, we have to start making those corrections in those other small things. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are just so many things that, you know, the American public don't know about that are happening in the federal government where their taxpayer dollars are being spent every single day. And it's even available. It's out for public consumption, yeah, but like, people oh, are just find out. not doing their due diligence as, you know, even stewards of their own government, right? right? I mean, right. we all have a responsibility to keep our government in check, right? Yeah. We elect these people, we put them in office, we can take them out of office the same way. Right. And we have a responsibility to understand what is happening in our government and put a stop to it if we think that it's wrong. Yeah. So, you know, just within my own agency, right, on on our website, which is available to the public. I mean, this is not like proprietary information that I am giving out, right? So on January 20th, 2021, the president signed executive order 13985. So the first day in office, Mm -hmm. the very first day of this administration, this executive order was signed, advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. This executive order requires all federal agencies to pursue a comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all people of color and other people who have been historically underserved, marginalized, and adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality. Okay, I mean, that sounds theoretically lovely. Mm -hmm. You want to help help people, right? Okay, fine. But practically speaking, what does that mean that we do the changes that we have made at the Social Security Administration. This is posted on our blog, on our website. Uh, To reduce these barriers and ensure everyone has access to our services, our equity action plan includes, and I'm only reading a few of these, increasing collection of race and ethnicity data to help understand whether our programs are equitably serving other applicants and beneficiaries and decreasing burdens for people who identify as gender diverse or transgender in the social security number card application process. So what does that mean, practically speaking? That means that we have made changes to not only the data that we collect, but to the systems that collect this data. Mm -hmm. Practically speaking, that means that we have spent tens, hundreds, maybe millions of dollars to make these changes at taxpayer expense so that we can collect 
data on people's race when they come into our offices or apply for our programs, right? And their preferred gender, um, you know, it's, you know, now it's no longer F or M for female or male. You know, the State Department started doing this on passports where they now allow an X, right? So now all of the federal agencies, right, are changing their (laughs) systems to allow for an X, right? And this is a a long-term process that takes a lot of time because, you know, it's not like you just add a checkbox to a form. It doesn't really work that way, right? So you are expending resources, right, to to make all of these whole-scale changes to collect this extra information and, you know, like extraneous data that doesn't actually really help us serve you better. It mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what color your skin is. But it creates equity. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a duty as an employee of the federal government to serve you and provide you with the best customer service, regardless of your skin color or your preferred pronouns right. or any any of that. Yeah, okay. That's not but, the government's business. But because we are now collecting this information, right, we we now have um a campaign, right? So, so one of of the things that like the American public doesn't really understand about the Social Security Administration is that um, we we have two major programs, right? Mm-hmm. So one is the is the standard what people think of as Social Security, right? Retirement, survivors, disability. You work for a living. You pay your taxes. You get to be a certain age. You go and apply for a retirement check or you become disabled and you go and apply for, for disability. And based on the your age and your earnings and, you know, what sort of stage you're in, you, you end up with a check, right? And there are a whole host of other factors and a lengthy application process for how we do that. But that is like the standard of what the American public thinks of as the services that Social Security basically provides, right. right? Including, of course, getting your social security number, which for most Americans would happen when you're born. Okay. But we also run another program, which is called the Supplemental Security Income Program. And that program is separate from the Social Security Trust Fund, where all your FICA taxes go, right? The the little line on your paycheck where you see money coming out, mm-hmm. that money goes into the Social Security Trust Fund. But the general fund, which is where this money from the Supplemental Security Income Program comes out of, that comes from personal income tax, corporate tax, other taxes that are just collected as part of the everyday taxation that the government, you know, enforces um, you know, people against the people. So, um, so, you know, this is where, um, a lot of like similar programs, the supplemental security income program is a welfare program. It's for low income people, um, you know, either above a certain age, below the poverty rate. Uh, sometimes they have to be disabled. Sometimes they don't have to be disabled. It could be for children. There are, again, a whole host of other factors that play into whether or not you can participate in this program, but you have to be low income. That mm-hmm. is the the first basic premise of limited income and resources. So this is in addition to any social security, like any disability payments, they could also do that program? So like with anything in government, it depends. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and there are a whole host of factors that would decide whether a person would be able to, to get checks from both programs or only from one program mm-hmm. or the and other the program. programs and everything. And uh, I mean, we don't, we don't really intercede at, at the state level, but, yeah. but yes, but I mean, there, someone could 
get there are a lot of factors yes and there are possibilities where folks can get um, different money coming in from from different programs right okay so you know as part of as part of this now we um we we now are using the data the data that i told you that we're now collecting All the equity data right uh-huh. to to reach underserved communities in rural and urban areas across the country where it where we have noted the greatest decline in supplemental security income applications since the pandemic and where the majority of people living in those zip codes are people of color and or people living at or below the 150% federal poverty threshold, right? So we're now collecting data on the American public. We are interested in your race, right? And and based on your race and where you live and, and or whether or not you are at or below a certain poverty threshold, we are now going to target your community and you know, approach you to apply for a welfare benefit. To encourage people to, to encourage get into this program. This type of right, wow. these types of applications, right? There is please let us give you more of the government's money. <laughs> there is no law in this country that says it is a crime to not be wealthy. Okay. And I did not go into government service to be wealthy. Yes, I am above the 150% poverty threshold, thank God, and I'm very fortunate for that. But not everybody wants to live the same way. And there is nothing wrong with living in a low-income community. There are beautiful low-income communities that are happy, that raise their children well, (laughs) that have values and provide for themselves and for their communities. But But we are now saying that, you know, there's something wrong with that. Right. The government has to come in and fix this because you must be sad and and in horrible conditions and we have to do something about that and make you happy. We in the federal government are now making a value judgment on the way that our citizens live as opposed to letting them tell us when they need help. Right. And I I just feel that that does not align, um, you know, with American values. And, you know, mm. it's out there. Like, this information is available and nobody knows about it. Yeah. So that's the long answer to saying why I think it is so important that, you know, Feds for Freedom has decided to expand our mission to target these types of, like, what I will say are abuses of power um, at the federal level um, that are, you know, targeting our citizens, spending taxpayer dollars inappropriately for things that are totally unnecessary or for things that only pursue a, a certain biased agenda, mm-hmm. things that collect data on our our race and and all of these other sort of like preferences that are totally irrelevant to being able to live in a society that is supposed to be diverse and, you know, open about accepting people for their backgrounds, Mm -hmm, right? Their mm -hmm. national origin, their, you know, all of these things. And so, um, you know. Is that considered classist when they have these biases against people who are low income? I mean... (laughs) So you said it. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, so as, you know, as as a board member of Feds for Freedom, what is the solution that you think would be to 
in this in this situation that you've presented, what would you want to do about it? Well, I think knowledge is power, right? And um, understanding what is happening and knowing about it means that we have an opportunity to fight it and express our displeasure, right. right? And obviously, this was an executive order issued by the president, right? Not legislation issued by Congress, but there is no reason that Congress can't legislate it. it out of existence, right? Right, right. so we have to bring and, it to their attention. Right. So it's about, you know, if you don't want to live in a society where decisions about you by your government are made based mm -hmm. on your race or the community that you live in, then you need to put a stop to it. Right. And it's every person's responsibility to um, take action individually and as a group um, to let our legislators know that we 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 don't approve of this type of you know behavior to not want our tax dollars to be spent that way right um, you know and yeah I mean I I guess it 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 all boils down to the grassroots mm -hmm. uh, you know and Americans caring about um, their own communities yeah. and and how they want the federal government to be run. So essentially what we're offering with our organization is the opportunity and this, the kind of the um, vehicle, we can say, for someone like yourself, either in the government or someone who's not in the government, who is aware of these crazy things that they see and, and maybe feel overwhelmed like, how do I do anything about this? I just They just end up hating the government in general instead of like feeling like, hey, we should stop this. We should do something about it. Most people don't know what to do at that point when they recognize a problem. What do we do? How do we stop it? Well, write to a congressman. Well, they don't always listen, do they? So really, as an organization, we are creating um, a base of other people who are willing to band together to you know, add to the fire to to bring some strength to the argument and bring it to the attention of Congress and to um, to get more involved in that way. Is that what you're saying? So, like, um, we bring, build the awareness and then we get a lot more people on board to fight it and and figure out what needs to happen um, to do that. I mean, things only change if we want them to change, right? right? And and I. I love my agency. I, as I said, I, I've loved working there, but I, I don't agree with everything that we are pursuing. Um, and I don't think that it's good for America. No. So I want to continue to serve the American public, but I want to do it the right way. Right. And we want to represent the American people. You right. know, we want a government that re represents them correctly. And, and I don't think the majority of people want those kind of programs in place and right. feel that's a good use of their tax dollars. Well, thank you so much for being on and for sharing with us your story. And we look forward to hearing more from you maybe in the future and other um, other members of our organization who have things to share that they are seeing. And, and that's one of the reasons we love this platform and we love the ability to um, share these stories with others. So for our listeners out there, stay tuned. We will be having more um, stories and inside information um, that we we know is available to the public, but like Melissa said, is not always brought to their attention and is, is kind of buried. And so those things need to be known and shared, and we will continue to do that. Thanks for having me.